0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the December episode of Solidarity Is This. I'm Deepa Ayer, and I'm so excited to welcome you to our December podcast. Before we get into it, I was reflecting on the fact that we've been doing the Solidarity podcast for about six months now. And if you've been listening, you know that we've been Talking about and hearing from folks who are working on very critical issues that affect the daily lives of so many communities of color, immigrants, and refugees around the country. We've been hearing about the Muslim and refugee ban, about the DREAM Act, about temporary protected status. We've also heard about how organizers are working at the neighborhood level in places like Madison, Wisconsin, to build relationships between communities of color. We built up a real archive of information of how activists are engaging in both theory as well as practice and also about the struggles that people are facing as they build solidarity across communities of color, across issues in a climate that is exceedingly hostile and virulent for most of us. I hope that you'll take a look back at many of these episodes. You can find them all on iTunes or at www.solidarityis.org. On that website, you'll also find something called the Solidarity Syllabus, which is an informational document that accompanies each of the podcast episodes, as well as information about case studies and theory and ideas and messages related to transformative solidarity practice. The title of our podcast today is American Land, Displacement and Removal. I'm really thrilled to have two amazing advocates on the podcast to talk to me about this important topic, and they are Pedro Rios, who is with the American Friends Service Committee in San Diego. He is the program director of the U.S.-Mexico Border Programme and Janine Komanot, who is the executive director of the National Urban Indian Family Coalition. I had a chance to get to know Pedro and Janine this year through a cohort of activists who are coming together to address issues like the Muslim and refugee ban, um, like the border wall, and land displacement and removal, and other forms of criminalization. And so it's really great to have both of them on The Solidarity Is This podcast. Thank you so much, Pedro and Janine, for joining me. Thank you.
1: Thanks. It's a pleasure to be on.
0: I want to start, Janine and Pedro, as I always start, with all of the guests who come on to this podcast, which is to learn a little bit about yourself, how you came to do this work, and why it's important to you personally. So, Janine, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about what motivates you to stay in the work that you do.
2: Again, my name is Janine, and I am an enrolled member of the Quinault Indian Nation, which is on the coast of Washington State. I'm also Oglala from Pine Ridge, South Dakota, and my mother is Canadian from the Heshquid and Quanguil First Nations on Vancouver Island. So, in a lot of ways, I was really born into the work that I do. My father was an activist here in Seattle, and so... Yeah, it just sort of picked up his mantle in a lot of ways in trying to be a voice for American Indian people who are often invisibilized within America. So that's the primary motivation for the work that I do, and I frankly just enjoy it. I really enjoy getting to meet American Indian people from all over the country and getting to hear what you know, sort of at the ground level what the community thoughts are and, you know, what's driving people and what folks need.
0: So Janine, I'm wondering if you can tell us then a little bit more about the organization and how it came about. And I know that there's an emphasis on urban Indians. And so if you could tell us a little bit about the distinctions there and the issues that you all focus on.
2: Our organization was really born from A thought that I had when I was working with um, somebody who was working at the Harvard Project for American Indian Economic Development, which really concentrates on tribes. Mm. So one of the big things in America and within what we call Indian country, I always say we have triplicate citizenship as American Indians, that we are first and foremost members of our tribal nations. And a lot of people in America don't really understand that concept of being a member of a a nation within a nation. So there's that aspect. And then what we mostly find is that when, in the rare occasions when American Indians do sort of hit the national vernacular, that people almost always think of American Indians uh, solely as living on reservations and that we all live on reservations and do all that. When the reality is is that most of us, over seventy percent of us, actually live within the urban centers all across America. And that our group of of American Indians tends to be sort of I call us the silent majority in Indian country and with reason because we all do belong to sovereign nations. And so we don't want to take away from the voice of the nations that we are members of But at the same time, we're we're very often invisible within the land, the civic landscapes within the cities in which we live. Mm -hmm. So our organization is really born from that sense of wanting to make the invisible visible. And so we work towards providing in any way that we can a voice to this very vibrant and rich and diverse population that's living, you know, we're your neighbors in these big cities and a lot of people don't know that.
0: Pedro, let's turn to you. Tell us a little bit about how you came to do this work that you do at the American Friends Service Committee, and especially why you work on issues related to the border.
1: You know, I can certainly point to my childhood growing up along the border. And so as a person that lived uh, in San Diego, I would cross Tijuana on a regular basis to visit my family members in Tijuana every weekend, practically, and especially for family events. But what I was curious about was how I would go to their parties or get-togethers, but some of my cousins weren't able to come to join me for my birthday parties, for instance. So that was always a, a question that I had. And so that kind of framed my concept of what it meant to live on the border, where some people had access to crossing through the border while others did not. And certainly I had that privilege of crossing into Tijuana, but my cousins did not. And then many years later, as a college student in the state of California, was considering Proposition 187, which would have made it so that local school teachers, local police officers, doctors, uh, social workers would have the obligation to have to report people they suspected of being undocumented, and and that was the actual terminology: suspicion, suspected. And so this created uh, a lot of tension in the community. I saw many of people that I knew, family and friends, who could potentially be impacted by Proposition 187. And that's when I became involved in, on issues of of immigration, on issues of border. And, you know, many years later, I continued doing that work. And I uh, was able to join the American Friends Service Committee as a staff member and have been with the organization for almost 15 years now.
0: I want to stay with you a little bit to hear about what the trends are that you're seeing right now. Obviously, your work is focused on preserving stories and the rights of people who cross the border who may be sent to detention centers who might be turned back. What are the trends that you're seeing about what is happening at the border right now under this particular administration? And you can you contrast that a little bit in terms of what you have been seeing under the Bush and Obama administrations? Yeah, I think
1: it's important to highlight the numbers that recently were published by the Department of Homeland Security. So the numbers suggest that there has been a 40% increase in interior enforcement detention. So this is ICE that is detaining people since the nine months that Trump has been in office. Mm -hmm. Since the beginning of the fiscal year, which would have been since last October, it's been a 25% increase. So that significant increase, 40% and 25%, I think, represents what we are seeing in the communities where there is much more active presence of ICE, but interestingly enough, we have seen a decrease in a number of people that are coming into the country, you know, crossing the border in, a, in an undocumented way. The trend, though, over the past couple of years, is that we saw a large number of Haitians making their way through South America, through Central America, through Mexico, to the United States. And so there, while uh, the Haitian migrants or the flow has stopped, there's still a lot of Haitians in, in Mexico, in the state of Baja California, roughly, I think, around 1,500 who are now making their life in Mexico. One of the changes I have seen and have witnessed is that there has been an increase of people from India that are attempting to cross through some of the borders. So crossing the border actually right where the uh, border wall prototypes are which is kind of interesting because they essentially are turning themselves in to Border Patrol, and the idea there would be that they are apprehended, will be detained maybe for about six months or so, maybe here in San Diego, maybe elsewhere, while their cases are being processed. Certainly the greatest number of migrants that are showing up at the ports of entry here in in the San Diego sector are from the southern part of Mexico, people who are fleeing violent situations.
0: And a lot of these folks, as you mentioned, you know, from various countries, right, are seeking asylum in the United States.
1: That's correct. They are seeking asylum. And I think, uh, you know, I don't want to miss the first part of your question, how does it compare to the Obama and Bush years, Mm -hmm. is that uh, there has been a a much greater number of people that are seeking asylum now than what might have been the case five years ago, 10 years ago. But I, I certainly would say that. The trend of deportations, especially during the Obama years, was significant. I suspect that we probably will see that number continue under this new regime.
0: And Janine, I wanted to turn to you because I know that a group of us, um, including you, visited that particular border with Pedro um, recently, the San Diego-Tijuana border. And I wanted to ask you what that experience meant to you as a Native person, And also, if you could tell us a little bit about how borders actually function, right? What is the understanding of a border at all to indigenous people? So
2: I'll start with the latter part of your question, which is pretty simple for us indigenous folks, is that we didn't put the border there. So we know that there's tribal nations all along, both our southern and northern borders, who have tribal members on both sides of the border. The most striking thing for me going to the southern border was just the sheer militarization of it. So I go back and forth to visit family all the time up in Canada, and the Canadian border doesn't look like that. So it's sort of this militarized testament to racism, as far as I'm concerned. And that was really, really striking, and it really jolted me. Um, it had a really deep emotional impact for me because I just think about, you know, like what Pedro said is, you know, he has family on both sides. And that that border to me is just such a monument to how you split the our social... Fabric as humanity, not just countries. Um, take the countries out of it. You're talking about families who are being split, and that is just heartbreaking to me. As an indigenous person, it's particularly it's particularly nasty for us because we are well aware of what happens when you start putting borders up and when you're displaced. So most of our tribal nations. We're not in our traditional homelands anymore because we are forcibly removed and put onto these very bordered things called reservations in mm-hmm. America, and there's a clear demarcation between the reservation border and the, the land around it. So I think on, you know, on that level, it also hits a really sort of almost like post-traumatic historical trauma was really ignited for me going to the southern border. And on top of the fact is that I was also raised by a Mexican grandfather who was Yaqui from Arizona, and all growing up, you know, his messaging to us was that on this side of the border, I'm just a Mexican, but on that side of the border, I'm an Indian. So it's a notion that I've been essentially raised with. And so it it just, going to the border, it hit a lot of deep emotional resonance with me, You know, as Indigenous people, again, we we don't recognize it in the same way, because we know that, you know, pre-colonial times, that there was this very vibrant highway that went all over North America, <laughs> like, you know, our tribal people, especially our southern tribes, you know, the Comanche and the, the Tauna and Yaqui and our southern tribes had... <laughs> really, really robust and vibrant trade routes that they did with uh, the tribes on the Mexican side and the indigenous people on the Mexican side. And for us, we see a lot of our, you know, Mexican brothers and sisters as also being indigenous. You know, unless you're from Spain, you probably, and you're Mexican, you probably have some indigenous blood in there. And so it brings up a lot of a lot of thoughts for me around colonization and what colonization has done to our countries and how we identify ourselves. You know, so that's sort of it in a nutshell, but it was really powerful. And, and again, I'll just harken back to the just seeing like the barbed wire and electric fences and border patrol and people in on helicopters and on four wheels and in cars and just the sheer amount of human and economic resource that is being diverted to keeping brown people out of our country is just stupendous to me.
0: I think that that's a really important point. It's racialized. The border itself is racialized, right? And I'm wondering, Pedro, how do you feel about that? Do you agree about you know that kind of analysis that the border is racialized and the militarization And the presence of Border Patrol is a response to that racialization. And tell us also about the additional ramp-up that's happening at the border wall, um, at the southern border in particular, under this current administration.
1: Janine, one of the phrases or one of the Statement that you used, I do believe that it's a military testament to racism, absolutely. And if we look at, for instance, what the border wall buildup has been for the past 20 years, and a lot of people don't know that we already have one wall, two walls, in some places three walls. Mm-hmm. There are roughly around 700 miles of walls that separate the U.S. and Mexico. The U.S. and Mexico are separated between a roughly almost 2,000-mile delineation Uh, between the countries, and the racialization of the uh, border walls, I think, exemplifies how the communities have been militarized, and so it's not uncommon, for instance, to see how Border Patrol is operating around the communities. Every time I drop off my children to school, I see Border Patrol vehicles that are right next to a school bus, for instance, or driving by the schools and carrying all the equipment that they use to detain human beings who are attempting to find a better life for themselves and their and their families, and so uh, the militarization of our communities has taken different different aspects of it that seek to normalize it so that people stop questioning how horrendous it is. So uh, it's quite common, for instance, for there to be a Border patrol agent who might be participating in a award ceremony for good citizenship at a local school, and that same agent might be cracking someone over the head the next day, someone who crossed the border without proper documentation. And so, the level of militarization has a serious impact on our psyche, and I think it just hasn't necessarily been measured to what extent it affects people who live. Along the border, we are seeing an increase in border wall buildup. We expect that this coming spring, there will be some replacement wall of some of the existing uh, wall. The four, designated 14 miles of wall that will be replaced. We suspect that some of the new border wall prototypes that were built just east of the San Diego Otay um, Mesa port of entry, some of that material and and techniques will be used in this new border wall buildup might be concrete. So it's going to be much more horrendous than what we have at this moment. And obviously, the discussions around policy in D.C. can't move forward without appropriations, seriously looking into funding for more border wall buildup, without a twisting of the arm of senators and members of the Congress in uh, deciding how much of a border buildup they will need to Allow in order to satiate the uh, insane desires of of a president who started his political campaign with racialized tones against Mexicans. Mm -hmm. And so it's absolutely racialized. We live it, we breathe it, and it creates an immense amount of fear for uh, people who live and work, go to church, go to mosque, do whatever they they need to do to live uh, a normal life in the border communities.
0: Janine, I want to turn to you and Pedro bring you in on this too, because obviously, this this is a podcast on solidarity practice. People are organizing and have been organizing against the southern border wall in times past, as well as obviously now. And you uh, mentioned, Janine, in particular, one nation that actually has a reservation that spans about 75 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border. And when the ramp up of this border wall was announced by the president, the Reservation leaders were very clear about their criticism of the ramp up and talked about how they would resist that ramp up, that it wouldn't go through their land, through their reservation. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how Native groups like that particular nation and others are talking about and opposing the border wall buildup. That's a
2: little more complex for me to answer, simply because, again, hearkening back to my opening statements about how tribes are actual nations within the United States. So, every tribe in the United States has a tribal government, they have elected leadership, they have infrastructure, all of that kind of stuff. So, I would never, you know, speak on behalf of a tribe, except for to say that I know with Tejano O'odham that they are staunchly against the wall and have been for, for very deeply cultural reasons. So that's their homeland. So when you have, again, this, and I think the word arbitrary is, is a really significant word here, when you have this arbitrary wall that wants to be constructed that divides up their homeland, which is their land by treaty, You know, the government is not, ideally, which isn't to say the United States government, they often violate treaties, and they've violated every one of them, but technically under congressional law, they aren't supposed to come in and do anything without consultation with the tribe in question. So. You know, to their credit, the Tohono O'odham's have just said, no, you're not going to come in and do this on our land for a variety of reasons, both ecological and cultural. Um, and the fact, again, that there are families on either side of this border that are tribal, that are tribal members. <laughs> so, we have that. We have, you know, the Yaqui tribe down in Arizona. We have, I think there's uh, one of the Rancherias in Eastern California is also on the border, if I remember correctly. And I don't know, my overarching sense right now is that our tribal nations are not in favor of this wall, and I think it's simply because we have a great depth of experience with the United States government coming in and, you know, decimating Indigenous families. As I said in our gathering of a few weeks ago, I think that Indigenous people and our tribes in America have a great opportunity right now as the original people of this land to have a voice in this debate. In my estimation, I think we should. To date, I don't know, you know, if the big tribal organizations like the National Congress of American Indians or any of the, you know, our Southern tribes have, you know, besides TO, generally speaking, our, even our other tribal nations will acquiesce to the sovereignty of the tribes who are most affected by it.
0: You know, we've been talking obviously about the border, but what are some of the issues either related to the border and criminalization or other issues that you all are working on right now that you want um, folks who are listening to know about and to learn about? So Janine, I want to start with you and, and if you could give us a sense of the types of issues, and I know that there are many, and as you've mentioned, they are unique when you look at reservations as opposed to urban Indians, but tell us a little bit about what Native communities are organizing around right now.
2: Right now, uh, Native communities are organizing. There's a really big push around police state violence because American Indian people statistically are actually... We're the highest police deaths in the nation, Mm -hmm. proportionate to our population. So, So that's a big one, and we really see this play out in the cities quite a bit. So there's a lot of organizing going on around that. There's a lot of uh, we recently sort of germane to this conversation. Um, it's not something we're necessarily organizing around, but I, I feel it's important enough to bring up. Is that you know we're in this process right now of beginning to expand our definition of indigenous because colonization, you know, has in a lot of ways uh, made our communities fairly isolated, and I think Indian country in general is starting to really blossom into recognizing our southern border as also Indigenous folks. This is an awareness that's starting to bloom for us, and I think that we're really looking at how do we begin to envelop and embrace our southern Indigenous people as also being, they're just as Indigenous as we are. So I think that's you know, sort of something that's looming on our horizon for
0: recognition. Thank you so much, Janine. And tell us also the website of your organization that folks can go to for more information.
2: Oh, it's uh, www.nuifc.org.
0: Great. And we'll add that to our solidarity syllabus for this podcast. Um, Pedro, tell us a little bit about the issues that you all are working on. I know that we focused a lot just on the border apprehension and border crossings and asylum, but obviously there are detention and deportation issues and other sorts of issues as well that you all are dealing with. So give us a sense of what those issues are and some resources that people might be interested in looking into.
1: A lot of our work, on the policy front has been to push back on the militarization. So the calls from the president to increase the number of ICE agents by 10,000, the number of Border Patrol agents by 5,500 would be a disaster because without any real systems in place that hold the agents accountable, it would be difficult then to accept a greater number of agents where we know that these agents potentially would be trampling on people's rights and basic civil liberties. So a lot of our work currently has been on the policy front, has been on working towards a Clean Dream Act, for instance, so that it doesn't come attached with horrendous border enforcement, more border wall, more border agents. On the other hand, though, on a much more positive front, a lot of our work also is in leadership development. We accompany the communities who are in San Diego in their own organizing styles and their organizing mechanisms provide them with uh, tools for leadership development. We conduct different types of trainings, which include how to do media interviews, how to run a meeting, for instance, Mm -hmm. how to organize yourself within your community so that they themselves can develop their own solutions for the problems that they themselves define. That's how we accompany uh, migrant communities who are already in, in San Diego and are trying to create a, a political space for them to participate so in a sense it's a way of redefining what it means to belong in this country by offering a uh, a theory that although you might not have proper documentation in this country you still are a participant and within that space you create a, a politic that is able to reshape the notion of citizenship and and in some ways that kind of is a way of breaking down the walls that um, bind people's actions that prevent people from becoming a, a full participant within their society.
0: Right. And and that's so important, I think, in also building connections between communities. You know, you both have talked about the importance of organizing, the importance of centering the voices and experiences of people who are impacted directly by all of these different forms of colonization and criminalization, you both have talked about the importance of sharing stories and narratives and owning those, all, of course, in pursuit of liberation for all of our peoples. So thank you for for really being clear about what it takes to organize in this moment and build solidarity across communities. And also hope that folks enjoyed this conversation, learned from it as I have, and are able to Look into the organizations and reports and information that both Pedro and Janine reference, and we'll try to include as much of that as possible in the Solidarity syllabus for this particular podcast. There are so many issues that we've talked about, as I mentioned at the top of this episode over the last six months of Solidarity is this from the ban to the wall to the border And more. But I hope that as we've talked about these issues, people will also hear the ways in which folks are rising up, resisting, um, using our uh, resilience, building on our ancestors and our ancestral knowledge of what it means to survive and thrive, especially when it feels as though every single day is an assault on some aspect of our humanity. I want to end by reminding people of two other issues that should be on your radar, especially this month in December, uh, the one of them is the importance of protecting our digital civil rights and the issue of net neutrality. And so for those of you who'd like to learn more about that, please visit the Center for centerformediajustice.org and freepress.net because net neutrality is an extremely important, vital, critical issue for those of us who are organizing. For those of us who are raising awareness, shaping narratives, just as Janine and Pedro talked about, but also for communities who seek information about how to live their lives, and vital benefits and services. So please check out those two websites for more information on how to preserve net neutrality, which is uh, under severe attack and has been repealed. The second issue is one that we've been talking about a lot on uh, Solidarity Is This, which is around the clean dream and the ways in which dreamers, undocumented immigrant youth, can be protected in this country, given that the program called DACA has been rescinded by this administration. Please look out for information about how to ask for, demand a Clean Dream Act from Congress. This is another issue that is really important to many communities of color and immigrants around the nation. So with that, I want to thank uh, Pedro and Janine again for joining me. And I want to thank all of you for listening to Solidarity Is This. You can find more information as well as past episodes over at iTunes or right on the website, which is called www.solidarityis.org. Thank you again, and I will catch you all in the new year.